Please open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 12. First Samuel chapter 12, we'll study the whole chapter. Let me remind you where we are in the history of the people of Israel. We have had Saul uh, firstly announced as king and then a battle to deliver the men of, uh, of uh, Jabez Gilead, I believe is the name of the city, my mind slipping from me for a moment. And then, in response to the victory, the deliverance of these men, uh, there is the reassertion of Saul as king, where the people of Israel submitted their hearts to him uh, and once more um, established him as king over them, not as a people, uh, not, not as a people to receive a king only at the choice of God, but as a people willfully to receive him as a conquering king and a leader over their hearts. So we come in chapter 12 and we have Samuel's farewell address. And if you know much about the history of the people of Israel, you know this is by far not the last that we will see of Samuel uh, as a man, as a minister. Um, But this is the closing speech of Samuel as judge. And so let us give our attention to this. This is something of a Rebuke, and then also a sermon to the people of Israel. Hear the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand? Have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army at Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, 
and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king, and now, behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him, and obey his voice, and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid, you have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we study this ancient history of your church, Lord, we are studying not only this account, but Lord, your eternal character. Oh Lord, your steadfastness and your kindness. Oh Lord, your grace and abundant forgiveness. Oh Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us to consider not only what you have done for the Israelites, but what you have done for each of us individually. Oh Father, that we would fear you and the greatness of your power, that we would love you, that we would delight in you, and that we would desire a more rich relationship with you and before your throne. We pray all this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. This is Samuel's last address as a judge. And with this address, the office, the institution, the authority of the judge comes to a close. And something to remind you of is simply this, as the passage has testified, the office of judge was instituted in the midst of Israel by God and in response to the repentance and prayer of the people of Israel. The judge was not only a ruler, but a spiritual leader. And specifically with Samuel, not just a spiritual leader in the abstract, but a priest. And so you have in Samuel not just one office, but two. You have a judge and a priest. And something you should understand is that this closing letter or this farewell address, it's not like uh, someone who retires after 50 years of ministry in a local church where lots of people have wet eyes from crying and uh, there's a lot of expression of how much they have loved him and he loves them. No, there's a different character to this. This is, well, it's, it's the testimony of a dejected leader and a rejected minister. And it's a bold, maybe even harsh, rebuke of the people who have rejected him and his message and his God. And whenever he speaks this in the midst of Israel, uh, this would have been, well, possibly in the first few moments of, uh, of his giving of this, this would have come in the form of a sermon, you understand. Um, it may have been just utterly rejected. The passage doesn't tell us that the people booed or anything of that nature. But let me simply say, if a minister were to stand in front of a church and say, friends, I'm leaving, and here are 15 offenses that you've done, uh, and I want you to see it before I leave, uh, it would be something of a shock. But that's what we have here. And I think that this flows not from an angry heart, the heart of uh, Samuel, as if he's been just simply offended, but rather from a pastoral concern that the people of Israel not forget the Lord and that they repent for what they've done and see their sin and that they turn back to fear the Lord, their God, who provides for them abundantly. There are four things that I want us to see this evening from the passage, and these are kind of long points, but at least one part is repetitive, and it's because it's the central theme. Verses 1 through 6, the fear of the Lord and faithful servants. The fear of the Lord and faithful servants. Verses 6 through 13, the fear of the Lord and a faithful redeemer. The fear of the Lord and a faithful redeemer. Verses 14 through 18, the fear of the Lord and a frightening sign. The fear of the Lord and a frightening sign. Verses 19 through 25, the fear of the Lord and a final warning. The fear of the Lord and a final warning. So as we look at verses 1 through 6, the beginning of chapter 12 and the beginning of his address goes directly to the point. 
There's no textual introduction to the sermon. Uh, There's no cultural illustration to grip the attention, but rather a shocking statement that everybody would sit up and take notice. Behold, I have obeyed the voice, your voice, in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. Who's he speaking to? Well, he's speaking to the people of Israel. And the first thing he's saying to them is this, I have done what you have requested. There is a sense in which whenever Samuel begins with this point, he is saying simply, yes, the judge is a civil servant. He's also a servant of God, but he is certainly a servant of the people. But you may recall a few chapters ago when the people requested a king that Samuel heard the voice of the Lord, which commended to him that he should do as they have requested. The scriptures in Deuteronomy uh, establish that the people may request and establish a king. And so his first point is this, I've done what you've asked. I've obeyed. I've given you what you could argue was your right, a king to rule you instead of a judge that was appointed by God. And then he goes on, and there's a transition in what he says in the beginning of this rebuke. He says in verse 2, And now, behold, the king walks before you. He's leading the people. You see, today I think we sometimes uh, would speak of our leaders, at least if we're giving a very vivid depiction, as being people behind the group. Like if we were in battle, where would the king be? He certainly wouldn't be out front. Our presidents, our chancellors, do not lead into battle. But in this age, in this early day, they certainly did. They absolutely did. And the leaders of people, whether they were a king or in this circumstance a judge, they led the people from the front, themselves in the way of danger. And I won't make too much of it, but to simply say this, Times have changed, and the character of leaders has also changed along with the times. But he says, behold, the king walks before you. The transition of power has occurred. And I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. And what is he saying there? You have a new king. I'm the old copy, a bit out of date, gray. I'm no longer in that portion of service a retired man. It's the language of retirement. And then the language regarding the sons, I mean, we remember them. They weren't honorable men. They didn't walk in the ways of their father. They are now among the people of Israel. That's a difference. They're not walking before Israel. They're just part of the congregation of the people. They are not judges any longer. Samuel is no longer a judge. Likewise, his son and his line is no longer in leading authority. And then he speaks about his faithful service. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. I led you as a people. My whole life I've been devoted to your care, your keeping, your leading. 
That's a testimony he says to them. It is a statement of fact. It's a statement of faithfulness that he gives over to the people. It's a testimony to his faithful service as a servant of Israel and of their God. We go on. In verse 3, he opens himself to public criticism. Because remember, he's a dejected judge and a rejected minister. Okay, He feels rejected. Remember, the Lord knows his heart. Whenever the Lord spoke with Samuel, he addressed specifically this. Samuel, they didn't only reject you, they rejected me as king over them. So he feels this. He feels their rejection. And maybe even he's heard the you know, the critical word. Not just about the sons. This isn't about them. They've done wrong things. This is about him, his service as a godly judge and a godly minister. And it's as if he's opened his robe and he says, Here am I. Testify against me before the Lord and his anointed. And you already get the submission of this former judge to the king. And here, he's not just called the anointed like in English, but it's the Hebrew, Mashiach, the Messiah among you. He says, testify against me before the Lord who judges hearts and before the anointed one who will judge you and rule you and has authority over you, who is the hand of God to bear the sword against you if you lie. Well, that's a significant charge. And it is profoundly and wonderfully bold. How can this man, Samuel, definitely a sinner, his son showing uh, that, uh, well, they didn't keep uh, the culture of their father before the Lord their God, but nonetheless, they're men like any other man. Sinners. It only stands to perfect reason in biblical testimony. Samuel is a man that could be accused, like me and like you. Not a perfect man, but he says, testify against me. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes? Now that is very bold. It directly points to his sons. Completely. And the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. Cruel, wicked men. False rulers in the midst of the people of Israel, and he is saying simply this testify, bring your complaint. I'm one man under God by the king, and you are the congregation of Israel. Say what you will, rip me to shreds. I'll leave myself to you. Why can he say this? It is because he is convinced that he has been a faithful servant, that his calling was true from the Lord that his ministry was constant to the people and in the word and in prayer and intercession, and that whenever he would stand before any man, he has already stood before the judgment of his God. Judge me. Lay before me a conviction. My God has judged me every day of my service. And so this is an intense moment. It's awfully... uh, Well, awkward. It's difficult. 
It would be like a leaving minister saying simply this, you haven't liked me, but where have I gone wrong? Where didn't I preach the word? Where didn't I attend to you when you cried out? And where was I not available? I have extended and executed the office of minister with faithfulness and with justice, a leader amongst you with great equity. I haven't stolen from you. I haven't taken bribes. I've been a man above reproach. That's what he's saying to them. It's incredible, and it's an intense thing. And I want to just say to you simply this. Here, Samuel testifies to this. In his own experience among the people of God, he is only giving voice to what happens to other of the servants of the Lord. It happens to kings. We have the laments of David constantly, over and over and over in the Psalms. We have the struggling... Uh, rejection and even persecution of the prophets of God all the way through the major and the minor prophets. It's a significant thing. Ministers are rejected. The Lord Jesus Christ came, lived perfectly, preached faithfully, never sinned in any part, not even an intention, and they hated Him and hung Him on a cross. And so the thing that I want you to simply see is this. The people of God like to criticize, reject, and despise even faithful servants. Whether they're a judge or a minister over the people of God, people like to reject authority. I mean, the Lord's already spoken to this. What is it really? It's a rejection of the God whom they serve. But it is the simple fact that whenever Samuel opens himself to the darts of his accusers, what do they say in response to his faithful ministry and the vulnerability that he gives of himself over to them? They say, you have not defrauded anyone. You've not taken anything from anyone. Nobody has any accusation against You, you have not oppressed us. You've not done any of these things. Why is he doing this? Is it just to be awkward? He's showing them their sins. Again, he's a pastor. He's not just coming against them to give them a, you know, a disciplinary timeout or a public and social embarrassment. He is concerned that they not reject spiritual leadership over their souls. If they have rejected his faithful ministry and the ministry that the judges have had and their governance over them, he is concerned that they're going to do it again to their harm. And so as a pastor, the most appropriate thing he can do is simply rebuke them. You know, we even think and look forward to the testimony of the book of Revelation and the moving of the lampstands. It didn't stop with Samuel. It didn't get exhausted in the ministry of Christ. He continues in the church today. And friends, we ought to all check our hearts. Whether it's me as a minister hearing other ministers and having a vow to submit to my presbytery and to their leadership and to their pastoral care, or my relationship to the session of this church in time when we have elders and we co-labor together and minister with one another and they pour into me. We all need to check ourselves. Are we receiving the faithful ministry that the Lord's appointed?
And if we're not, and if we're grumbling, we ought to simply be rebuked and stop and turn and fear the Lord who appoints these people over us, over our souls, our minds, our lives, and our spiritual well-being and growth. It's a significant thing that Samuel is doing. And you go on and we see, secondly, in the passage, the fear of the Lord and a faithful Redeemer. Verses 6 through 13. And here what you get in these verses is something of a condensed history lesson of the people of Israel up until this point. I don't want to read every single verse. This is a a larger section, so I'm going to point to some things and outline um, parts for you. Verse 7, you get the tone of his heart, or really his intention. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord he performed for you and for your fathers. When you look at the word in the original language there, plead, uh, it could be translated, let me judge you, because this is a word that directly relates to the work of a judge. It really is the language of pressing the heart. That's what's under this. Let me plead with you. Let me press you. Let me burden you to remember what? Does he just want them to remember the deeds where they've gone astray or the failures of the people of Israel? No. No, the testimony is this, that he may press, plead, or burden them before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord he performed for them and their fathers. I want to press the goodness of God to you. That's what he's saying. The history of the righteousness of the care of God. And so he progresses. And in verse 8, he speaks about the people of Israel who are in captivity after they have been cared for under the hand of Jacob in Egypt. And so turn your attention to the verse. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. Well, that's wonderful. When you were there and not in the promised land, when you were there in the place where the Lord would appoint for you food and the care of the clans of the household of Israel, and they began to oppress you and you cried out, what did the Lord do? He sent you a redeemer in the man Moses and a priest in the man Aaron. He cared for you body and soul. Of course, we know the story. We know the Lord sent plagues. We know that the Lord divided the sea and caused it to close back upon the armies of Egypt. We know that the Lord fed the people in the wilderness. But again, this is a condensed history. He doesn't give everything. He's giving a simple testimony. You cried out to the Lord and he answered you. You cried out in oppression under the weight of earthly kings, not under the weight of God, but under the weight of earthly kings, and he delivered you. Well, you go on and continue to read. And he says not only that, uh, but in verse 9, 
They forgot the Lord their God. They forgot the Lord their God. And there again, just make a quick mention of this. When he speaks of the Lord, this is not the word Adonai. This is the proper covenantal name, Yahweh, the personal name of God. And it's a loaded name. It brings all the history of his kindness to his people right along with it. It's the covenant name of the Lord revealed uh, to Moses and repeated over the people. Uh, It stands for promises well beyond those that are directly mentioned. And they forgot the Lord. The Lord sold them or gave them over uh, into uh, the hand of Sisera, commander of the army at Hatzor, and then again into the hand of the Philistines, and then again into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. So there's this succession. They forgot the Lord. Their hearts were far from Him. And in Judges 3 and 4, they, they are characterized as a people of idolatry, bowing a knee to the Baals and the Asherim. The Lord just gave them over into it. See, it's like they turned their back and the Lord said, okay, go your way. Do the thing that you have found to do. Again and again and again it happened. And what was the response of the people after all of the slavery and all of the warfare that they had endured? It was that they cried out to the Lord, verse 10, and said, we have sinned. They confessed their sins. Because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. The heart turns back to the Lord their God. They return to Him in repentance. And the Lord forgave. What's the response to this generational sin and this cry to the Lord? Well, it's verse 11. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety. What did the Lord do? He gave them judges. Great and mighty judges to lead the people spiritually and to bear up the sword and to defend the people. That was His hand. He established them under His own rule, not as a kingdom, but as a household. And he gave them one to care for them and to deliver them out of the hand of their oppressors. When you look at the original text, the two of the names here kind of go back and forth. They're sort of strange names. The name here that we translate as Barat uh, has another translation, or, well, it's directly read Baram. I think it's Barak. Makes the most sense. And then Samuel, you have half of, well, not quite half. There are more texts that say Samuel than that say uh, Samson. But in either case, we're talking about judges, right? Same people, same office, uh, difference in the textual record, but something that you should understand. But what's the response? The Lord delivered them again in the midst of their sins. Well, in verse 12, they saw Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, that came against them. Here again, another one of the kingdoms. And then they turn to Samuel and they say, No, but a king will reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. 
What is this clear testimony? You have rejected your king. And in the midst of this condensed history, we've read about Moses and Aaron. There's been mention also of Jacob and the provision in the midst of the famine. We've read about the judges, the great judges, not even all the judges, but the steadfast deliverance of the Lord. That again and again and again, the Lord answered their prayer. But let me ask you a question. Who are the faithful redeemers? Is it Moses and Aaron? Jacob? Is it the judges? No. It's the Lord who was their king. Their rejection was a rejection of God. And he's taking it and he's saying simply, these are the testimonies of history that the Lord has been kind to you again and again and again. And he's delivered you and he's poured out kindness you didn't deserve. And he's brought you out of the hand of an oppressor again and again and again by the hands of his servants. Yet he's the redeemer. They weren't your king He is your king, and you rejected him. What's under it? Well, they didn't fear the Lord. They didn't trust him in his power and in his might. The things that the Lord had appointed by the hands of the judges that were still reigning over them under the reign of Samuel as judge. They didn't trust the God who was behind him, the God of power, the God of armies, Yahweh Savahot. They didn't trust him, the one who commands a legion of angels. They turned their backs on him. They forgot him. This is a rebuke. And he's saying to them, you need to see that you haven't rejected just me or even my sons. You rejected your God. It's not just the rejection of faithful servants. It's the rejection of a God who has redeemed you again and again and again. And friends, you need to see your sin. Whenever the Lord speaks and the Lord delivers, you shouldn't have a short memory of who has powerfully done the work. But I love this because even in the midst of the rebuke, That's really not the end of it. He's not just saying, I want you to feel terrible. I want you to to know that you're just a bunch of terrible people who have rejected the King who is the Lord over you. In verse 14, But if you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord... And if both you and your king who reigns over you will follow the Lord, it will be well. Repent. You've done wrongly, but the Lord remains a redeemer and remains full of grace and remains a God who reigns above. And you know this? He can even make use of this servant and make him faithful. If your heart is in his hands, If you fear Him and turn to Him and fear Him. It's a really simple word. I told you it was a sermon. We rebuke, and this is the application. Turn to the Lord. 
Humble yourself under Him, even though you have committed such an egregious sin of directly rejecting the God over your hearts, your history, and your future. It's as simple as that. He wants the people to hear their sin and to fear the Lord and to turn back to Him. Verses 14 through 18, we have the account of the fear of the Lord and a frightening sign. And if you sat under any amount of sermons, you have heard sermon illustrations. And I'm sure you've heard good ones and bad ones. You may have heard some that you felt like, well, the pastor didn't really understand the text of Scripture, and so he told us a little story to distract us from his ineptitude. That probably happens, right? Just a little entertainment to get through the hour. That's a wrong thing in a faithless ministry. If you don't know the text, certainly don't confuse the people with a story that goes abroad from it. Maybe you've heard some illustrations that just simply fall way short. You know, illustrations that are intended to do things like, you know, illustrate the, the doctrine of the Trinity. Famous minister tried to do that on a hill in Ireland with a clover and committed a number of heresies all at the same time in accidental theological confusion. But nonetheless, illustrations take things and drive them home. They get things uh, really uh, to the mind in a way that's not just textual, it's pictorial and to the heart, things that you might remember. Because one of the things that I'm aware of is, is whenever I, I drive home from uh, our services and I ask my sons, you know, boys, uh, what did I preach on? Rarely can they even tell me the text or maybe the main biblical person. Uh, but sometimes if I've had a decent illustration, they, they can recall that. They'll tell me that, and I'm like, oh, man, you remembered the thing I said, but not what it meant, right? But every now and then, there are illustrations that grip so profoundly that they drive things to the heart. And so this is what Samuel is doing. He's preached, and he's saying, you need an illustration, and you need an illustration, not in words, but in the deed of a miraculous God. So in verses 14 through 18, we get... Uh, a warning, but if the people don't do uh, what they ought to do, verse, excuse me, 15, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. That should have gotten their attention. Now, therefore, verse 16, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Hey, guys. Here's a little illustration so you don't forget it. Is it not wheat harvest today? That's the question he asked. Him. Now that's a pretty tenuous question. It's a little bit of a strange one. You know, maybe the people are waiting. Is today the wheat harvest? We know Samuel's angry. We hope he doesn't have a torch, right? <laughs> we don't need that lesson. Uh, maybe, maybe that won't be what he does. And he says to them, after the question is asked, I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. That might sound just like trivial almost, right? But in the harvest season, especially in the Near East, and in the time in which they would be taking in wheat, 
Rain is not common. Storms are not ordinary. And storms could destroy the entire crop. You know, a really difficult storm with a lot of wind could lay the, le- the wheat low. And if they left the wheat laying low after it has already been dried and ready to harvest, what can happen? It can stay wet. And then what happens if it's wet? It can mildew and mold and spoil and their entire harvest is completely destroyed. This is a significant sign. And it would have not just gotten the attention of the people. It would have terrified the people. Not just for the sake that they're afraid of rain and thunder and lightning, but for the sake that they're afraid for famine. Now, we're not told that the Lord destroyed the harvest, but he got their attention. But what is this an illustration of? It's not just an illustration of the power of God, but he tells them very specifically when they see this sign, what is it? Well, that they would know that their wickedness is great, which they have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for a king. It's going to stick in their minds. And so there's this sign where the The prophet of God here, if you'll allow me to call Samuel such, calls down a heavenly storm. And he is saying to them as if he's grabbing them by the shoulders, take note, this is the disciplinary act. Sit up and listen and learn. Don't forget. Fear the Lord. So this is a disciplinary thing. This is not terribly unlike, at least in a sense, church discipline today. That happens in a number of different things. And maybe it doesn't happen as often in the one that I'm about to mention to you as it ought to. But for the critical and insubordinate heart in the church that undercuts leadership and disturbs the people, church discipline should happen, ought to happen. And what's the point? What would it even look like, really? Well, the first piece would be that a person might be called before a session of elders where they say to them very simply, this is the thing that you have done and you are disturbing the people and you're dishonoring the Lord. You need to stop. And I don't know about you. Um, Maybe you haven't gotten in trouble in your adult life, but maybe when you were a child you can remember back to some sort of issue where you had to stand before your mom, your dad, Uh, the headmaster or principal of your school and your teachers, there's a bit of fear and trembling that comes along with us. And I just like to simply think that very few things are more terrifying to me as a minister than a group of Presbyterian elders. I've had a lot of quivering of heart in front of a group of God's men. What's the point? It's not just to punish the person. It's to get them to stop and to take note and to fear the Lord and to repent. That's the point of the sign, so that these people would fear the Lord. But we go on, and it's not done at that point. Samuel's a preacher. He's preaching, and he's, well, like most preachers, a bit long-winded and maybe a little bit repetitive too. And in verses 19 through 25, there's the fear of God and a final warning. Verse 19, you get the response of the people to the sign. Not only that we've already read in verse 18 that they feared the Lord because of it and Samuel, afraid of him, but they respond to him verbally and the request is, pray for your servants. Pray for us. Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. Remember, I told you the sign was kind of intense. Could have ruined their entire harvest. Maybe it did. The text doesn't tell us. But the potential's there. 
Maybe that's not even the only thing they're afraid of. Maybe they're afraid of the immediate retribution of God. They've experienced some of that being sold or given over into the hands of wicked kings and leaders. Pray for us that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil. Samuel, we hear about all the sins we did, and you know what? We did add to it. We were idolaters. We did reject the servant of the Lord. And now we've rejected the Lord himself and his rule over us whenever he's delivered us. They've heard the sermon. The uh, application landed. They, They see their sins and they're shaken over it, really. Please pray for us. Oh man, who we rejected, who we fired, pray for us in desperation. That's what they say. Verses 20 through the end, we have Samuel's response. And I I think it's really wonderful. Samuel says to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. (laughs) You've done it, but don't be afraid. You're right. But you have a God of grace and a God of mercy. That's the weight of do not be afraid in the verse here. He says, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. He's saying the thing that's gripping your heart right now, the feeling you have right now, the conviction not only of your sin, but of the God who deserves your praise, don't turn aside from this. Serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver for they are empty. See, he's pointing right back to the rejection of a servant who can profit the people of God, who can pour in the word and the ministerial care. He's saying also don't reject the Lord who delivers. Don't do it again. You need to stop. You need to turn. And you need to not go back to it. He goes on and in verse 22, there's a doxology or a praise to the Lord because of who the Lord is. And and it's an assuring word that he says, for the Lord will not forsake his people. Why? For his name's sake. Now let me say this. That's good news. It's not that the Lord will not forsake his people just because he loves you all so much and you're adorable or maybe like a father would speak to a son or a mother to a a daughter or however, oh, you're so beautiful. It's, it's great the Lord made you cute. It's your defense mechanism, right? That's one of the things sometimes I think my kids can scream at me and in the midst of their little rage and their sin, they still look adorable. And I'm like, I'm stopped for a moment. Maybe it's not a good idea to treat them as if they were a grown man doing the same thing. They're so adorable. They're defended. Now, The, the reason why the Lord will not forsake them is because His name is great. It's for His name's sake. That's what we studied this morning. Why won't the Lord forsake them? Because He's promised and He's no liar. He will not sully or tarnish or diminish His name and His glory. He will not go back on His word. He is the God, the only God and a God of truth. That's why He won't forsake them. He is their God. They are His people. It has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. The Lord will not forsake you. 
And then to the question of Samuel's continued service and care for them, verse 23. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that the Lord, or uh, yeah, that the Lord, I'm losing my my place, excuse me. Yeah, moreover for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. You hear what he's saying? Yeah, I'll pray for you. Because if I don't, I sin against God and I break my ordination. That's what he's saying. I'll pray for you, not because you're good people, not because I even really particularly like you, but because I've sworn to the Lord that I'll care for you. That's significant. Officer candidates, and there are a bunch of you here this evening, your ordination vows are bound on this. You'll care for God's people because you love God and you're afraid to sin against Him. Brothers, hear that. Take that to heart. That's what he says to the people. Far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. The office of judge has closed, but the office of priest remains. I'll care for you. I'll shepherd you. I'll direct you to the Lord. And then in verses 24 and 25, there's the the last parting warning. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. I'll pray for you. I'll teach you. But the next lesson is this. Fear the Lord. And if you don't, you should fully expect that the Lord will do away with you and the whole of the kingdom and your king as well. Repent. You will answer for what you do. Friends, I hope that the Lord would give us a moment to pause, to take stock of our own souls, and to examine ourselves regarding our conduct in the church and amongst the people of God and in response to the servants of the Lord, whether it be in our church or others uh, that we've known or sit under at times, uh, that uh, we would examine ourselves in the fear of the Lord, that we'll fear Him, and that we won't have short memories of the Redeemer who saved us from deadness and brought us into life, from disobedience and rebellion and into, re- into obedience in Christ, uh, from being an enemy to being a son and a daughter. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, how you care for your people, Lord, how you are steadfast and unmoving, oh Lord, how you are not blown about by the wind or the rage of the hearts of men, Father, that our sins don't surprise you, Father, we thank you that you are steadfast and that your promises remain, Lord, we do pray that as a church that we would be submissive not simply to those whom you set over us because they are men honorable or good or strong or gifted, but that, Lord, we would submit to you, O Lord, and that we would trust in you and your wisdom in our keeping. Father in heaven, we pray for your mercy for our church and for us as Christians. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.